Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to this very exciting episode of the Enneagram and a Movie podcast. Uh, uh, TJ, TJ, th- this is a big one. We're really excited here. Uh, we're going to talk about TJ and Gracia's pick of the movie, The Shawshank Redemption. And um, uh, let's see, so, but we have some special guests. And uh, so TJ Daw, why don't you tell us about it, our special guests and why they're here with us today in particular. I'd love to. So I was watching Shawshank Redemption twice, as I always do whenever we do these recordings. I always watch the movie two full times to see what hits me. And I'm looking to see what the Enneagram types are, the characters, but I'm also looking to see what's the symbolism of the movie, what resonance, what meaning does this have beyond just the surface of the story and the personality types of the characters. And it occurred to me watching it the second time that the, the metaphor of our personality as a prison has been used throughout the Enneagram community like, from a number of people. And I thought, yeah, that's really interesting. What if I look at this movie not simply as a story of a guy who's wrongfully accused of murder and sent to an actual prison, but as the story of somebody who is trapped in their personality as and prison's a metaphor for that. And then it hit me, wait a minute, I know someone who's been to prison. And I know someone who discovered the Enneagram in prison and someone who facilitates people learning the Enneagram in prison. So in... 2013, my partner and I were studying at the Enneagram Institute, and we made friends with Clay Toomey, who was very open with us about his experiences, about how he came to the Enneagram, and has opened himself to the world. He's done an Ask Me Anything on Reddit, and he's also published an autobiography called The Blue Chip Store, which I have and love and have given away as a gift and highly recommend. It lays out his story of how he came to discover the Enneagram in prison, why he was there in the first place, and what it did for him. And we've known each other through the Enneagram community ever since. And I met Susan at the Enneagram, uh, the International Enneagram Association Conference in 2018. And Susan and Rick Olesek run the Enneagram Prison Project, which she can explain a whole lot better than I can about what they do and how wide this project is. But I thought their insights might be amazing to have on this podcast. And here they are. Yeah, it was a stroke of genius, TJ, when you uh, suggested this, and so thank you for that. And uh, with with that, um, let's let's hear from Susan. Susan, great to see you again. Great to have you. Um, tell our audience a little bit about yourself, a little bit about the Enneagram Prison Project, and then we'll go to Clay. Thanks, Mario. Thanks for having me, TJ and TJ, and um, really always happy to be anywhere Clay is. And especially when it comes to talking about what we do in prison, because he has lived the experience. I just happened to come along and learned how to facilitate. I am um, founder of Enneagram Prison Project, and I'm also a guide here at EPP, which means that we facilitate self-awareness programs inside of institutions. And then during the pandemic, when we couldn't do that anymore, we developed a lot of public programming, which is the same work that we do in custody for the, the free people, as they call us from the inside, which is ironic and and uh, a paradox, as we'll probably get into. And I have uh, three kids. I learned the Enneagram when I was a brand new mom, and I am sort of living it and breathing it everywhere. So to go someplace where it's an opportunity to have some fun with it is a edge for my type one structure, and I'm just really tickled to be here. 
Yeah, great. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Susan, I, I just want to point out again, you know, you're doing such amazing work with your team and the EPP. Um, but you're not just here in the United States, though. Uh, how, how many countries are you guys operating in now? We're operating pretty uh, robustly in Belgium and France. We're also in England, um, Australia. We just got affiliated in Canada. And um, we're also scaling in more places than California where I live. So we're in Minnesota and Colorado and Illinois and moving into the Pacific Northwest, Southeast. So we have a really giant vision and we're, we're scaling. Great. Fantastic. And did you say the website where people can find more about you? Enneagram, if you can spell that, enneagramprisonproject.org.org. And we're happy to have you come check us, check us out. Nine Prisons, One Key is our online program that people start with. That's our compassionate curriculum that was inspired by the place where I met Clay. Great. So, Clay, uh, other than having the misfortune of being a Dallas uh, sports fan, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, if you would. Um, I, that's a fun one to start with. And I deserve that because nobody heard our conversation from before the record button was pushed. I blew all my punchlines way before anybody could hear them. Uh, but yeah, I'm here in Dallas. Um, and, uh, I, I've born and raised in Dallas, lived here my whole life except for a few months where I didn't. And, uh, part of those few months were when I was incarcerated. Um, I served a few years here in Texas uh, for the curious. I don't mind sharing anything about my crimes, so feel free to ask. But um, mine's pretty straightforward. I was a bank robber. That's what I did for a few, uh, about a year um, back in 06. And I went to prison in 07, got out in 2010. And during my last year is when I met Susan. Uh, that's when I started learning about the Enneagram and more specifically learning about my type, which is type 5. And I got out later that year in August of 2010. So about 12, almost 12 years ago now, as we record this. And it's been a, it's been a big part of my life. And it's, you know, in, in my opinion, it's been a, a large part of why I've been able to stay uh, both alive and not incarcerated. Uh, so it's been a pretty impactful tool um, in my own personal life. And I enjoy having the opportunity to talk about the past. I don't, I don't say that I enjoy talking about the past. I just appreciate the opportunity. And I think every time that I can have a conversation that might help someone else in any way, whether it's entertainment or learning or anything, I think that that just adds a tiny bit more value to the life that I lived, um, you know, prior to incarceration and during incarceration, frankly. So happy to be here and Sorry that you live in Philly. That's all I got. <laughs> I had a really good one, and I'm, I'll, I'll come up with another one. I'll get you back. All right. For anybody not listening, uh, Philadelphia and Dallas have a, a really, really uh, angry and hostile sports rivalry, particularly around football. Um, so, uh, Clay, we'll have to talk about the famous Ice Bowl uh, one of these days. I don't know if you remember the, the game in, in Philadelphia where uh, my beloved uh, Philadelphia fans were throwing ice balls at the uh, Cowboys down on the field. So it was very, very un, un, unseemly. Anyway, uh, so, 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 so it's, it's clear that there's a connection between the movie Shawshank Redemption and um, uh, Susan and Clay's work with the Enneagram Prison Project. Uh, but uh, we didn't have that in mind when we first picked this movie. So I want to hear from TJ and Gracia. Why did you pick this movie? We're doing kind of a potpourri employee pick sort of season. You picked this movie. Uh, tell us why and then give us a summary of the movie for uh, you know anyone out there who 
for whatever reason, may not have seen The Shawshank Redemption. Sure. Well, as a kid, I love this movie. Um, although I was thinking, I'm surprised that I was allowed to watch this movie when I was a kid. But for whatever, maybe because it was on cable TV, so they uh, cut out some of the less child-friendly parts. But yeah, I've, I've always loved it. And thinking about it in Enneagram terms, I think that you know, identifying as a type one, there's often this you know, as, as, as ones we can be characterized as being pessimistic and critical. And I, I think that can be true, but I, I connect with the deep hope and redemption of this film. And I think as a one, even though I might be pessimistic and critical at times, it's because I have hope that things could be better, that things can change. And so maybe there's some part of my uh, subconscious that connected with that. And then just the ending, you know, don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but every time I get to the end of this film, like Byron Hadley, I sob like a little girl. I just, I cry every time I watch this movie. I think the last five minutes might be the most beautiful, redemptive five minutes of any film in cinema history. And I've just always loved it. Yeah. I, I, I always, it's one of those movies that for me, I think, you know, my reaction to it should be that it's a bit too mawkish, right? A bit too sentimental, but it works every time. Every time I see it, it gets me. I feel it. I don't, you know, say, oh, this is just hokey or uh, too manipulative or something. I think it really walks that line in a, in a skillful way to capture those feelings. Um, so I, I agree. Agreed. Um, before we get into the summary, uh, first of all, let me confirm. Clay, Susan, are you guys movie folks, and had you seen this movie before? I'll go first because it's a short yeah. one. Uh, no, I'm not a movie folk. I don't watch uh -huh. a lot of movies. I, If I do, it's usually a, a slapstick comedy of some sort like Dumb and uh -huh. Dumber or Liar Liar or something like that. I did well, see this one. You just went over TJ and Gracia there. With yeah, okay, that, cool. So. All right, yeah, awesome. Okay. We can watch that one too. Uh, <laughs> but I, 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 don't, um, I don't intentionally avoid movies. It's just one of the things that I don't participate in too much. Uh, right. But I have seen this movie previously. Um, ironically enough, I saw it when I was locked up. I saw it when uh -huh. I was in prison. That was the first time that I saw it. And it was... I thought I thought very highly of it, and I also never watched it again, which is usually the case with movies in general for me, but especially prison movies. Not my yeah. favorite genre, I'll say. Um, yeah. But I, I like T.J. Daw. I did watch this twice for this. I watched it. Um, I watched it last night, right before I went to bed, and then I watched it today again, right when I woke up, so I could see it two different times a day. And uh, that that's probably the end of it for me. I won't be there. Won't be <laughs> there won't be a fourth time. <laughs> Very curious to hear how it played in prison. It's funny. Um, it's it's like watching a sports movie with athletes, or it's like watching a music movie with musicians. There's a there's a mix. There's some people who say, "Oh, that's that reminds me of such and such," and they're, they're almost like some nostalgic, you know, joy or some. And then there's also people who are like, "Well, that's not how it is," or "That's not real," or "That's not accurate," or whatever. And and the same mix applies with watching this film inside of prison surrounded by people who are also in prison. And I think massively it was accepted as good and people liked it and watched it again and all that stuff. Very few people thought negatively of it at all in there. Uh, it's, it's easier to watch that kind of film in prison without any triggers or anything like that. Cause you're in that life. You're, you're, you're currently existing in the movie that you're watching in a way. And so the trigger, uh, the, the triggers are way lighter and far 
much farther apart. Getting out of prison, being removed from prison, and then watching it is a different story. But in prison, it was it was two thumbs up from practically everybody. I think it's so interesting to hear that, Clay. I wondered many times if they would play it on the inside. So super interesting. Um, I'm not a movie buff. I, I want to be one, but I'm not. And <laughs> it's not so much a, a product of not loving movies because early on in my relationship, Rick and I used to play hooky at work and there was a movie theater next door and we worked in the same building. We'd go to, go to one and then sneak into a double feature. So I love <laughs> film and getting lost in it. I tend to not remember movies. Um, an infamous number of stories in my relationship where Rick and I will, you know, back to when we used to pick out movies, he'd be like, that's the one we, we watched last month. And it still happens all the time. But this one I, I did watch and watch again, like the rest of you. And I've always loved it. I remembered, I loved what I remembered of it. And I loved watching it again and again. So that's interesting. What you just said there, Susan, was there anything watching it this time that you hadn't remembered, but that struck you as a particularly interesting or enjoyable piece? I think I just have more um, awareness and hopefully a little bit more sensitivity to the um, the institutionalization, um, which is a word that's used a lot throughout the film, and what the, the effect of sort of that toxic stress on people um, over time, the accumulation of what that does to a person. And I've also experienced um, some really long relationships, especially with Clay and other ambassadors who have gotten out and been able to sort of feel the through line of what happened to them before they got out. And I just, it's so much more of a human, it's not, a, it's a human experience for me being in a relationship with people who are experiencing incarceration. And it, uh, the first time I saw it was just a movie. <laughs> Although I have to say, like I just told you, I can't quite remember too much about it. <laughs> or at least you think it was just a movie, but you really don't remember, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, great. All right. So, uh, TJ and Gracia, for any, again, for anybody who has not seen this movie, uh, give us a summary of the plot. All right. So, in 1947, banker Andy Dufresne is convicted of murdering his wife and her lover and is sentenced to two consecutive life sentences at Shawshank State Prison. Andy keeps mostly to himself at first, but eventually befriends Red, an inmate and contraband smuggler inside the prison. He's a man who knows how to get things, uh, who's also convicted of murder and serving a life sentence. Andy asks Red to get him a rock hammer that he can use to pursue his hobby of shaping and polishing rocks. For the first couple years of his sentence, Andy is regularly attacked and sexually assaulted by a group of inmates known as the Sisters and their leader, Boggs. In 1949, during a work detail touring the roof of the license plate factory, Andy overhears Byron Hadley, the sadistic captain of the guards, talking about an inheritance he received from his deceased brother and complaining about the taxes he's going to have to pay on it. Andy offers to help him in exchange for a round of beers for the men touring the roof. And while Hadley almost throws him off of that roof, he eventually agrees. Shortly after uh, this happens, Andy receives a horrible beating from the sisters, which nearly kills him. While he's recovering, Captain Hadley severely beats Boggs in retaliation, who was transferred to another prison, and the sisters never bother Andy again. After Andy returns from the infirmary, Warden Samuel Norton reassigns him from laundry duty to assist elderly inmate Brooks Hatlin in the small, dilapidated prison library, uh, despite Brooks having been the only librarian there for decades. But it turns out that the library job is only a front for having Andy help the other prison staff with their finances and eventually including the warden himself. 
Around this time, Andy's given permission by the warden to write to the state legislature, requesting funds to improve the prison library, which he writes a letter every week. In 1954, Brooks is paroled after serving 50 years of his sentence, but he's unable to adjust to life on the outside and eventually uh, hangs himself. The legislature finally uh, decides to shut Andy up. They send him a check for $200 for his library project and ask him to leave them alone. Uh, This encourages him to start writing two letters a week. But along with the check, they also include an assortment of used books and a record player, which Andy uses to play a recording from The Marriage of Figaro over the prison PA system. Uh, For that stunt, he's given two weeks in solitary confinement, which he describes as the easiest time he ever did because of the music that he kept with him in his mind and his heart and the hope that it gave him. Uh, But Red dismisses Andy's hope, saying that hope is a dangerous thing. In 1963, the warden begins exploiting his endless supply of free prison labor for public works projects, profiting by undercutting other companies and taking bribes to not do some work. Andy launders the money for him using the alias that he created, Randall Stevens. In 1965, burglar Tommy Williams is sent to Shawshank and befriends Andy, who helps Tommy pass his high school equivalency test. Tommy reveals to Andy and Red that during a previous stint at another prison, his cellmate confessed to the murders that Andy was convicted of. Andy approaches the warden with his information, who refuses to listen. When Andy mentions the money laundering scheme and saying that if he ever got out, he would never tell anyone, uh, the warden becomes enraged and sends Andy to solitary confinement for two months. During that time, the warden has Tommy shot and killed by Captain Hadley uh, to prevent Andy from ever being released and securing the continuation of his money laundering scheme. After his release from solitary, Andy tells Red of his dream of owning a hotel and a boat in Zehuatanejo, a Mexican town on the Pacific coast. He also asks that if Red is ever released, he travel to Buxton, Maine to retrieve a package that Andy has buried there. Uh, Andy's behavior and demeanor start to concern Red, especially after Andy asks another prison inmate for six feet of rope. The next morning, Andy's cell is found to be empty. An angry Warden Norton throws a rock at a poster of Raquel Welch on Andy's cell wall, revealing the tunnel that Andy has spent the last 17 years digging with his rock hammer. Uh, The previous night, Andy used the tunnel and the prison sewage pipe to escape. And while the authorities are searching for him, Andy, who is wearing the suit and shoes that he stole from the warden, poses as the non-existent Randall Stevens, withdrawing over $370,000 of the laundered money. He also mails the bank ledgers and the evidence of corruption and murders at Shawshank to a local newspaper. As a result, the state police arrive at Shawshank to arrest Captain Hadley, uh, and Warden Norton commits suicide in order to avoid arrest before the police get to him. The following year, Red is paroled after serving 40 years. Like Brooks, he struggles to adapt to life on the outside, but what keeps him going is the promise that he made to Andy. He travels to Buxton and finds what Andy buried there, which is an envelope of cash and a letter asking Red to join him in Zewatanejo. Red commits the second crime of his life by violating his parole and making the journey, finding Andy on the beach working on his boat, and the two embrace. The end. And tears flow. Yes, every time. Uh, Okay, great. Thank you, TJ. Um, uh, TJ Daw, I don't think we got your kind of reaction to the movie in general. Share with us. Yeah, I remember when this movie was brand new. I was in college, and it was a complete bomb. It came and went in the theaters like that. And it was nominated for all the Oscars, didn't win anything, didn't really have much buzz. And then a few years later, people started talking about it. 
And that's when I watched it on video, like a lot of other people did and thought it was incredible. And it has since just steadily risen in popular estimation. So that now it is one of the most, it's one of the movies that you can just count basically everybody's seen. And if you reference it, people will know what you're talking about. You can even reference the character name Andy Dufresne and people will know who you're talking about. So yeah, I've loved it for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, so it is interesting. I always enjoy saying that, oh, I saw this movie in the theater because, you know, we've talked about some fairly old movies. And so it's an accomplishment to have seen those in the theater. Uh, this one I did not. Uh, like everybody else, I missed it. It came and went. It has a terrible name for a movie. Right. Uh, there was also a lot of, of other things happening at the time. And this movie really took off when TNT bought the rights to it to play on cable. And they just started playing it all the time over and over again. And so people started watching it and talking about it and realizing this is a really great movie. So it did take off. And you're right now. It's considered a classic by all accounts. I think on the IMD database or some database that I saw. It's listed as the most popular movie uh, of all time, uh, having topped The Godfather uh, a few years back. Um, Sacrilege. I, I was going to say I wouldn't go that far, but you know, but it, it is a great movie. Um, okay, good. So, um, so let's hop into it here, okay? So because I think there are some really good Enneagram type depictions in this movie i think it is really well cast and the casting was interesting there were a lot of people who were originally considered to play andy dufresne i mean there was uh tom cruise was one of them i mean it's everybody from gene hackman robert duvall tom hanks kevin costner couldn't do it because he was tied up making Waterworld, that all-time <laughs> favorite film um they even looked at johnny depp nicholas cage charlie sheen and finally settled on Tim Robbins because the director had seen him in Jacob's Ladder and wanted him. And it was, um, <laughs> this kills me, it was uh, Robbins that wanted Morgan Freeman, who was not particularly popular yet. And one of the reasons that he wanted him is because he used to watch him on the show The Electric Company <laughs> when he was a kid. Uh, so, so, uh, so uh, oh, really? Yeah. So uh, I think the electric company was a little after my time, but um, it was, but I can't imagine better actors in these roles. The warden is one of those that guys, right? I mean, you, you know, you you see that guy. He's always I pick my words carefully here. He's always a jerk, right? He's always uh, that same sort of pious. Uh, sneaky, evil character. Uh, his name is Bob Gunton, plays uh, 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 Warden Norton. And Clancy Brown, I mean, you know, Clancy Brown, the, uh, the, the captain of the guards, always plays Clancy Brown. So uh, a really Except great... in, uh, when he does the voice of uh, Mr. Krabs in SpongeBob. Oh, is he really? Yeah. Ah, I didn't know that. Okay. All right, great. So, uh, so real good typecasting here. I think so. I'm going to throw this out to the crowd. What I don't know. What what jumps out to you as a really clear clear enneagram type depiction in this movie? And I'm going to throw it to our guests first. So either Clay or Susan, did any of the characters jump out to you as a particular enneagram type? Oh, I'll be brave and say it before Clay on this one. But I, I do feel that Andy Dufresne is a five. Uh, Clay, are, are you, would you have said the same thing? 
Yeah, and I was hoping she would, so I would be more confident in saying so. But yeah, I, I feel now I, I feel f- more confident, Clay. So yeah, okay, <laughs> we're confident together. Been like that so, for a while. So. so share your rationale for why he's a five. For for me, it, it's so I'm a five, uh, you know, with a four wing, and there's so many things about watching this, just the subtle things about how he goes through life with you know knowing um things that you don't have any business really knowing and that serve no purpose in knowing but that's just part of the fun as a five sometimes it's just knowing and being ready for conversation no matter what the conversation is so this knowledge of rocks or knowing that you know or like when the when they're doing the cell inspections and he's and he's i think this one was actually intentional with learning bible verses and being prepared for that situation just like certain things like that um, he also has an Einstein picture in his cell. I don't know if y'all saw that or not, but um, it's like the hero of all fives. But uh, just tiny little things that he that he goes through life doing is just like I've seen myself in a lot of those scenarios. Whether it's teaching uh, the finer, you know, complex details of the tax code to all these prison guards, or teaching the alphabet to someone who's trying to get their diploma. He, both of them are of equal importance to him, and it's just. That's what life has been like for me. Um, and there's there's nothing that's like more important or greater to, importance to know. It's just know everything and then teach when the opportunity arises. So he does a lot of that. And some of it's like super subtle. And I, I wonder how much of that is just me seeing myself and picking up on it or how much of it is super obvious and I'm just overanalyzing, you know, all that. So both of those are are equally likely. I think. It's not like a five would overanalyze or anything. <laughs> no, never. I've never been accused of that. <laughs> so that's, that's in a nutshell, that's my take on that. Great. Uh, Susan, uh, what would you add to that? I, I like all those points that you're bringing clay. <clears throat> I, I wouldn't have thought of them in that way. Exactly. But um, he does say this line at some point where he says, you know, my, my wife used to say, I'm a hard man to know, uh, you know, I'm a, like a closed book and I loved her. I think this is the really tender part that he says, that's what killed her. You know, that I didn't know how to show her that I loved her and that I drove her away and that she died because of this trait in me. And so it's, it's really tender. I think he's got a, big old honking four wing. And I think he's like, that comes out in his music and is the beautiful part that you, you um, talked to about TJ and Gracia about how he kept that music in his heart and it was the easiest time that he ever did. And I know it makes me wonder if he's a social five in the way that you're describing him, Clay, because he does so many things on behalf of other people. He's really attentive and does things for the, that benefit people besides himself. And um, so and I, I really felt that he, his love of geology, I think he put it as like a, a study of pressure and time, which I think is this beautiful metaphor that goes throughout the film and um, what happens to him at the end with this, with this pressure and over time is, I think he sort of chisels away at all that hardened heart that he, that he had and he's actually very accessible. By the way, fun fact, one very specific moment in this movie that I relate to is when he gets thrown in the hole and he has the music and that's what makes it tolerable. That literally happened to me. I, I was put in the hole for two weeks. Um, f- I had a rash on my arm and a guard was mad at me for not eating pickles on a meal one day, which sounds asinine, but that's prison life sometimes. So she had a bone to pick with me and the first opportunity she got, she said, oh, you have a rash, you must be you know, quarantined. and. Um, so I got thrown in the hole for medical quarantine for two weeks and the whole time I was there was, is I just sit there and wrote music. 
I had no had no instruments, but I had pen and paper, and I could I could just plot out and let that fill my my days, just playing with different ideas that have to do with music. And as a as a musician, um, that's just where I went. And two weeks in the hole for me was just like two weeks of being left alone. It was almost like two weeks in paradise, frankly. So it's a it's a really like funny thing to watch. A very miserable experience for most being portrayed accurately as something like, you know, he's got music. You can't, there's nothing you can do to, to restrict me from my own mind and the experiences that I can remember. So you can take my food, you can take my daylight, you can, you know, you can strip everything away from me on the outside, but there's literally nothing you can do short of some kind of, you know, uh, medication, I suppose, that takes me away from, from my mind. You just can't do it. No matter where you put me, I can still go farther in. Great. Uh, TJ, TJ, thoughts on Susan and Clay's assessment of Andy as a five? I agree. Yeah, I think that uh, certainly he feels like he has some striving to feel detached. Uh, you know, Susan already mentioned him saying that uh, he was a hard man to know for his wife. The scene when he first approaches Red, and after he walks away, Red has this little monologue where he says, I could see why some of the boys thought he was snobby. He had a quiet way about him that wasn't normal. He strolled like a man of the park without a carry worry in the world, like he had some invisible coat that would shield him from this place. And my thought about that was similar to what uh, Clay was just talking about. It's like he's he's living inside. It's like almost like he's protecting himself from this place because he's he's got his interior world. And so he's, you know, whatever he can, he has, he can go inside of his own mind, whether he's in prison or as a banker or on the beach in Mexico. And presumably the beach in Mexico was preferable, not to say that he enjoyed his time in prison, certainly, but just that he, you know, I, th- that made sense to me, that, that connection. Yeah. A few things to add. Uh, he's patient, secretive, and meticulous. So as was mentioned by TJ and Grassi in the summary when he's sending in letters for funds for the library, letter a week for years and years and years. He's got all the patience that anybody could need. And then, of course, when they give it to him, he doesn't stop. They say, please stop now. I'll write two letters a week. And he does. And they don't say this, but what I imagine is he wasn't just repeating the same words at a time. He was probably writing a new letter every single time. And that slow persistence made the damn burst, which is also how he escaped from prison. And... Even his closest friends don't know he's doing it. And he does it little by little over the course of years and years and years and does the impossible without anybody knowing it. And knowing that if I get impulsive, if I lose control of my mental faculties, if I get impatient, this whole thing will be lost. You got to do it at exactly the right rate for as long as it takes. And one of the things that jumped out at me this time was part of his escape involves escaping on a night that there's a thunderstorm because that's when the sound of him smashing the pipe that he crawls out of can be masked by the thunderclaps. So there's the patience of doing that and then knowing, okay, my tunnel is ready and now I just have to wait for the right time. So that is superhuman patience to most types. But for a five, it's like, yep, I'll bide my time. I'll wait as long as it takes. Another thing about him is he's very straight-faced. So when he gets sentenced to two consecutive life sentences for a double murder he didn't commit, he just closes his eyes. He doesn't scream. He doesn't cry. He doesn't. He's he's just very flat faced pretty much the entire time, including when he finds a maggot in his oatmeal when he first gets there. He just kind of looks at it as if to say, "Ah, oh, interesting." Another very five thing is under stress, 
because I was, I was I was watching and I was thinking he could be a five, could be a nine. There's certain nine-ish things about him in just in just how immediately likable he is. Fives tend to be kind of prickly. You know, it's not easy to befriend a five. I mean, it can obviously happen. It just happens a lot more quickly and easily with a nine. Under stress, he calls people out on their intelligence. So in the final confrontation with uh, the prisoner who is the leader of the sisters, he's, you know, he's, he's giving them a stat about what happens if there's sudden brain trauma and how it causes the jaw to clamp shut and you need a crowbar to release it. And the guy says, where do you get this shit? And he says, I read it. Do you even know how to read, you ignorant fuck? Or later when the, um, when the warden is rejecting his request to search down the prisoner who actually committed the crime that he committed, he says, how can you be so obtuse? Is it deliberate? So he, that, that is about the sharpest cut that a five will give you, is that you are stupid. And I'm going to call you on it to your face. And I'm going to make you feel this big for being unintelligent. Because to a five, that's the worst thing a person can do. And then one more thing that I, that I thought of, the first move that he makes with winning over the guards with doing the tax problem for Hadley. He gets beers for all of his workmates. He doesn't drink any. And I thought that was interesting. Where did that come from? And maybe one of the aspects of it that would fit in with him being a five is the joy of solving a difficult puzzle. This is the supreme challenge within the prison social system. How can you win over Hadley, the Clancy Brown guard, the hard-ass guard who literally kills people? Who doesn't take shit from anyone, not for one second. And I'm going to walk up to him unannounced. And this is just a coincidence of the casting. Uh, Tim Robbins is six foot six. So it's not like a little guy walking up to a bigger guy. They're the same height, they're the same size. I'm going to walk up to you as your inferior, as the prisoner, and ask you, do you trust your wife? You know, not even open with, I can help you save your taxes, but just proposing this thing while being held over the side of a building and pulling it off, that's winning Final Jeopardy for the 10th episode in a row. And I can see how that would appeal to a five. Good. So, um, so we do have consensus here because I would also agree that he's a five. Um, and you guys have covered most of the reasons. I will point out a couple of other um, things that I noticed. Uh, so when I think of the five, I think of this strategy of striving to feel detached, like TJ and Gracia said. Um, it is how the, the strategy is how do we solve the problems that life brings our way? How do we cope? You know, how do we survive? And it was clear to me that this emotional detachment was his coping mechanism, right? It's the way he solved problems. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to divorce my emotions from things. And I'm going to think about it. Even when he was sitting outside of where his wife is having an affair with someone, um, you know, it uh, it didn't feel to me as if it was a nine-ish kind of, uh, you know, fear of conflict. It was just let me step back and see what I think about this and figure things out. Um, when he was uh, being sentenced or when he was being tried in court, you could see him sort of uh, agreeing with the logic of the prosecutor almost, right? Saying, yeah, well, that, yeah, yeah uh, right. Uh, uh, and, of course, he tried to counter it with his own logic, but he was very rational about it. He didn't let his emotions get in the way of it. Uh, T.J. Daw, you pointed out this uh, sort of intellectual arrogance, which you can see in a five under stress of, you know, how could you be so stupid? Um, but I also thought that with this character captured 
better than almost anything I've seen about fives is the tenderness at the heart of the type five. This sweetness, this kindness that uh, most people don't get to see because what they see is the detached piece. And I just think there were so many places through this movie where he had this sensitivity, uh, this, uh, this kindness, this sweetness that just permeated his character. Uh, so I, I would definitely agree. I would also agree, uh, Susan, you said you saw him as a, a, a social five. Uh, I would agree. I call that navigating and clearly trying to navigate and understand the organizational dynamics and how things worked was how he functioned. Uh, and uh, navigating fives are often confused with nines because they're sort of a softer, warmer five uh, a lot of the time than, say, either the preserving or transmitting might be. So uh, I like the tender part that you're bringing up, Mario, and I don't know if Clay will like this or not, but that is really the one of the qualities that I really fell for when I met him when he was in such a you know unthinkable place as prison is there was so much caretaking going on of of me as a facilitator to know what the hell you know I was such a rookie in there and that was apparent. Um, and there was a lot of support that you offered me, Clay, but also of the other guys that were there. And if I, if I may, I'll just tell a short little clip about that. And I, I think Clay, social is, or navigating, as Mario calls it, is what you lead with, yeah? Mm-hmm. So when I was um, teaching where Clay was living, I was there on, for a weekend at a time for many weekends and a couple months apart. And um, over time, we got to know each other a lot more. And um, I had really been wanting to do some kind of um, relationship panel, which is, you know, nobody can have their partners on panel with them, but we decided to do a Selly panel and, or at least that's something that I wanted to do. So everybody would have their cellmate and they would get to talk about the dynamics between them and that occurred in that relationship. And I was just sort of wishing for it. And, and Clay said, Oh, well, t- tell me more of what you'd want. And I, I told him, and then he disappeared. And I frankly felt very like, where'd he go? And um, he reemerged several hours later with a list of all the people in the class and their cellies and their name and their what they call sweet name on the inside and a little summary of them and the type they worked with. And he gave this to me like this gift from above. And then we actually did pull off this panel, which we have a recording of that he used against me in the podcast that we have for EPP. But there was just, there's so much generosity in the five. And I love that you're, you're highlighting it because I think that's, that's why we love the five so much. Yeah. Great. I think this question is more for TJ Daw. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to test his trivia knowledge here. Uh, TJ, the, the song playing at the beginning of the movie, do you remember what it was and do you know the name of it? The song, like the old song, the 1940s song? Yes. No, I don't remember. Yeah. So uh, it's called If I Didn't Care by the Ink Spots, also prominently featured in Blade Runner, uh, which I would suggest is another Type 5 movie with the Harrison Ford character, right? Um, and the song, the lyrics, because it has this sort of detached vocal style. It's a great video on YouTube. You should look it up if you get a chance. If I didn't care by the ink spots. But what the lyrics are is, if I didn't care more than words can say, if I didn't care would I feel this way, if this isn't love, then why do I thrill? And what makes my head go round and round Why my heart stands still? And there are these sweet, profoundly loving lyrics delivered in this sort of detached Bare, uh, way that barely medis- registers emotion 
uh, which for me just set this tone of fiveness that carried out throughout the movie. I'll say that at the first, when I watched this, I shazammed it at the oh, very beginning. Yeah, yeah, I was nice. I was watching this and like, because I had I had a, a completely emotional reaction to, a reaction to hearing it, both because of the the melody, the scene. You know, he's in, it's like it's a it's a movie music, and then actually now it's coming out of his car stereo and and the words and um i i was i was you know talking about the last five minutes being a cry fest every time you watch it i was i was i was pretty tender immediately from from just that um and i i've it's a lot of how i experience life probably so there's some bias in there for me i guess but yeah i i did shazam this song before the movie even started i'm sitting there getting out my phone like i'm not, I'm not gonna watch this with my phone and then i'm like oh shit we'll turn my phone back on and yeah so well i'm constantly jumping on the imdb while i'm watching these movies so that, that's okay. probably a smarter way to do it yeah. <laughs> all right uh okay so uh any other thoughts i think we uh we uh, pretty much nailed this one uh again i was starting to think you know one, one of you mentioned uh could be a nine I, I, I was curious if anybody would uh, assert that he was a nine, but I think very clearly a five. Uh, One thing that I just want to mention, I mentioned it earlier, but I just want to plug Clay's book again, Blue Chip Store, which is the story of how he wound up in prison. If anybody wants to read a beautifully textbook five criminal story of if a five were a bank robber, what would make them different from a different type of bank robber? If a five were to go to prison, uh, how would they prepare for that? There, we could spend this entire podcast, Clay, just pulling out your story. Uh, it's, there's more of it than we really have time to go into. But if anybody wants to hear that story, it is incredible and a perfect illustration of Tech Five as a type. I think. Clay, is your book available on Amazon? And it is available. Uh, it's oh. available there. I, I I usually preface this by saying if you're a if you're a digital or if you're a, you know, like an ebook reader. Uh, d- don't pay for that. Get in touch with some, uh, that. Uh, that's free to anybody who wants it and anybody who can hear this or anybody's friends beyond that. I, I give away the digital copy um, as often as I get requests for them. If you're not an ebook reader and you prefer the hard copy, that's the one that's not free because that costs money to do. Uh, but yeah, it's on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. It's basically everywhere where books How are sold How can people online. contact you directly for the... Uh... They can uh, Facebook's an easy way. I mean, I have email, clay at enneagramprisonproject.org, which is a whole lot of letters to type. Uh, but I do, I check that multiple times per day. Um, you could, the easiest thing to do is whatever, whatever your communication style uh, preference is, just f- look for me there. And my name is, my last name is spelled T-U-M-E-Y. So Clay Toomey. And I'll, I'll respond anywhere that I get a message. And, 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 and I am happy you know if you buy an ebook i'll say it this way if you buy an ebook the company that you buy it from is getting most of that so don't feel like you're supporting me by doing that and if you just like spending money then knock yourself out but um i really i my preference is that people read it uh, and then all the financial stuff comes secondary you know to that so uh, happy to give that away if anybody gets in touch with me or y'all or whatever just let me know and i'll i'll pass it along If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one consulting on creative projects of all kinds as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. 
For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjingracia.com. So, um, let's see. Uh, let's go to Red, uh, played by Morgan Freeman. Any thoughts on Red's Enneagram type? I thought he was trickier. I, I didn't think it was as clear cut. I felt him easygoing in some ways, like a nine, but I don't think he's a nine. Why not? He's too cynical, but I guess nines are cynical sometimes, or quite a bit. I can say that I experienced him as one of the cellies that I had my last year in prison, who was a six. Yeah, that's where I'm headed. There's a lot of things, and it's the same for me with, there's a lot of, of nine that I see there, but he, there are some very specific things that he said that I only heard my cellie say. Uh, stuff like like anxiety-related things or fear-related things, or it doesn't matter what I do, you know, kind of things. And, you know, going into parole hearings for all those years and preparing what he thought would be the right answer, and it never was. And then he finally goes in there and basically says, you know what, fuck this, fuck y'all, whatever, I don't care. You know, and that's that's kind of the pattern that I saw my cellie uh, go down um, for for the whole time that I knew him. And so a lot of, it's not that I observed traits and then went to the Enneagram to see where they fit the most, you know, but it was just the way that I experienced his character is how I experienced my buddy who was, uh, absolutely, uh, a type, a type six. He doesn't hang out in the, the warm fuzzy, like a nine does. He says hope is a, a dangerous thing and that it can drive somebody insane. And, um, and he, when, when Andy's talking to him about the Pacific Ocean, he says it would scare me to death. And, um, and he says, I just want to be someplace where I don't have to be afraid all the time. And I think, you know, it's a cultural overlay. Look where he's being institutionalized. I think that's definitely a factor. But for those reasons, I felt more six than nine. Six is where I was leaning. You know, that line, I mean, you just said, all I want is to be back where things make sense, where I don't have to be afraid all the time. Uh, where he says, uh, 40 years, I've been asking permission to piss. I can't squeeze a drop without say so, you know, just sort of de- this deference to the authority figure. Now, I'm, if you've been in prison for 40 years, I imagine people of all types would have trouble going to the bathroom when you've been asking permission for 40 years. But there seemed something that and just his awareness of this idea of being institutionalized, you know, maybe it's a little stereotypical, but sixes can have sort of this attachment to an institution that they want if what's my place in this you know where do i fit in what can i offer the institution so he seemed to have some awareness connection to that certainly not as strong of a type i think as andy is a five but that's what i saw i didn't have a particularly strong impression of him either my best guess that i only came up with this morning was a three a navigating three and navigating in terms of the fact that he's the guy who can get what you need and that's all done through social connections so that's very much the trust and reciprocity part of navigating. One hand washes the other. I give this person a pack of cigarettes and then they get this package from the guy who's delivering the laundry and they set it aside. And then, you know, like we all know each other, we all understand each other. We know who owes who a favor. Three, in terms of his ability to navigate those waters, his ability to make that work for him, his stability to know everybody, and that his journey is a journey towards authenticity. Very much from, I will tell the parole board what they want to hear, towards I will be genuine and honest. 
and not try and score a point by what I'm saying. That was my sense of it overall. Uh, not so much like he's a picture perfect three or anything like that. And six makes plenty of sense to me too. It's interesting that all those things we just said are all inner triangle connected. Yeah. It's like there's some there's something going on in that triangle, whatever we land on. Yeah, because I was leaning towards nine. Um, and uh, for me, it was more around affect than anything else, um, because I think that uh, all the uh, the words spoken, you know, I mean, I, I completely agree, right? The, the, the talk about fear, the talk about uh, being under the control of someone, etc. cetera. Uh, for me, um, again, it could have been reflective of character. It could have been reflective of circumstances. So I'm not quite sure. I, I don't think it was a, a really cu- pure uh, depiction. But Morgan Freeman just has such a nine-ish affect to me that it was hard to see anything else, right? I mean, he just, the, the guy's just smooth as cotton, right? And uh, so even when he's talking about being afraid, the only time he seemed uncomfortable during the whole movie was when he was bagging groceries yeah. and asked to go to the bathroom. I mean, the rest of the time, he just seemed comfortable and rooted in his place to me right so uh uh so, so that's the direction i would have had but you know uh and it does say something about that inner triangle right there's a whole lot of interaction going on there and you see each of these things bubbling up in anybody who's a three or six or a nine so um I, you know again I, I i wouldn't i don't feel as strongly as i do um about what i think about the warden for example uh or even what i think about uh andy's character so uh i would also add brooks you know i had been thinking nine as a possibility for red but compared to brooks who's just like can we get a nine please ah send in brooks <laughs> maybe the one of the ninest nines i've ever seen he's just so easygoing and lovable and likable and the first time we see him he's feeding a chick of a crow that he's rescued he's feeding it a maggot from his own hand and we see that crow grow and become old and he cares for it. And he's just gentle and kind and minds his own business. And you can't help but love him. It's a pretty good choice that we never find out what crime he committed to be there because that might make it a little bit harder just to think of him with such complete unconditional positive regard. But we do because he's just the nice old guy. And he was sentenced to life. So whatever he did was fairly serious. Uh, right. Okay, great. So, um, so let's talk about the warden, TJ Gracia. Oh God, no, no, not me. <laughs> you seem to have a strong opinion, so I'm going to be very right or very wrong here. Go ahead. Uh, well, I I was a little bit conflicted, but ultimately I landed on Type Eight. I've always been conflicted about him. Actually, for my YouTube series, I used a clip of him in my one video. And I felt like there are some one-ish kinds of things. He's very judgy. He's very sort of like, I'm above you people in a, in a uh, judgmental kind of way. But ultimately, it felt like he's not, he certainly enjoys having power, the power that he, that he wields in the institution. Uh, there is a quote, actually, that, let's see, which book is this from? Oh, this is from Instinctual Leadership. Well, don't go by that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great one. There's a quote that says that they um, it's, they want what they want and they want it now. They can be so relentless in their pursuit of their goals that anything they view as an obstacle can become an obsession that must be resolved immediately. And you know that's pretty he, good, actually. 
Yeah. No, go ahead. He, you know, Tommy's a, a there's a roadblock to his continued uh, money laundering scheme. Well, we're just going to take the we're going to take the problem out of the equation and and keep going. And uh, so yeah, I just I I was conflicted. I'm still, you know, that's probably where I'd land, but I'm I'm easily swayed. Okay, good. Let's throw it to the group then. See if anybody chooses to try to sway you. I'm not going to try to sway him. I will say that, that you know how people say, well, I wonder what type Jesus was. And some smart ass always says, well, he was a type 10 because he was the greatest. I feel that way, but on the other end about this guy, like I wonder what type he was. He's probably zero because I don't want to connect this dude with anybody with else that might hear this. Because uh, if, if you told me that this guy was a five, then the last thing I would want to be is a five. And I, so that is my bias. I'm admitting that. Uh, out front and I, I'm actually scared to even think about what type I, I'm so I'm so biased on on his based on his behavior and that and he's such a real character by the way it's this this is not a super exaggerated Hollywood version of what some folks can be like in charge so uh, that's that's my helpful or unhelpful input on this guy well I I think that's I I, I love the caution and care by which you're approaching this and I'll preface any further conversation with you know we all know that that people of uh, any Enneagram type can be pretty awful awful people and um, you know so um, well frankly uh, a lot of the things that he does I've thought and 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 have considered and so there there are there is a lot of things and I'm not saying he's a five by any stretch of the imagination but he does do a lot of things that are heartless and based only on what he sees is um, not not even good in a moral way, but just good for him. And there are some very um, there are some very th- wild things that I connect with. So some some of those traits, like no no one type owns all the bad traits. So that's that would be that would be crazy. But so that's also part of my struggle is that I, I could tell. I'm so biased that I'm probably more likely to say he's a five because I relate to some of the bullshit that he that he did, and and I just I know how I know how dark my life was during those times, and that's just that's what it looks like sometimes for me. I really felt him to be a type one, and I didn't. I feel like it's so funny what you're saying, Clay, because I didn't want him to be the type that I relate to. <laughs> like I didn't want him to be such an asshole, but he was one, and I felt like he was one, also. And for a couple of reasons number one i think he kept himself so clean like he kept himself so distanced from distanced from the dirty work that he did he had other people do his bidding and and that kind of thing and even sent other people to make sure the tax stuff was going to work and then he put himself in that situation he he was hiding all the dirty money and the books and behind the safe behind that sign that said something like his judgment cometh and that right soon and I just thought that was so foreshadowing of, of that. And even in the end, he couldn't face what he'd done. He, he, you know, he didn't have the, um, the moral fortitude to, to do it, to, you know, withstand being the, in the public's shame. And he had all these um, like programs, do-gooding programs that he was, that he was behind, this inside-out program they said they learned the value of a hard day's work while providing a valuable service to the community, even though it was this total trap door stuff, right? Like everything was a cover for everything else and the pie. And so I just think he was kind of a, a classic um, to use the Riso Hudson work, like the lower levels down the leaden rule, pointing out the corruption and everybody else, but not being able to cop to how, how corrupt and morally deprived he really was himself. And I, and I will say, 
I don't know, I don't know this guy, Bob Gunton, very much, but I did look through and one of the things I saw was a, a then and now picture of these guys. But this movie came out like when I was, uh, how old was I? Like 10 or something like that. So they don't look that much older than me. And um, he was, he just played such a, such a hard to like type one in such a brilliant way. But the picture of him today looks so much like this um, person who is the community resource manager at San Quentin, where we program, who is very beloved by EPP because of like he was one of those we call them angels on the inside who just allowed so much to happen. He's such a good, good person. And he's smiling and he's very sweet in this picture, and so it, it makes me um, just you know what we always talk about is this sort of nice part we're, we're bringing in consistently is that people who are really cut off from themselves are that's where we're seeing that kind of personality and so there was probably something good in warden norton too but they did a damn good job of making sure we didn't feel it <laughs> go ahead tj i saw him as a one as well uh when the, the first moment we, we meet him he says rule number one no blasphemy welcoming the new prisoners this is the other rules you figure out as you go along. I believe in two things, discipline and the Bible. Here you'll receive both. Put your trust in the Lord and your ass belongs to me. Welcome to Shawshank. So the opening note of his symphony is that of moral authority. And the moral authority belongs to God, not to me, and I'm, but I'm God's representative here. And the fact that he would prioritize blasphemy, less likely that it would do that than I thought. And... Uh, Susan, to build on what you said, I really saw him as an unhealthy one, like a lower level one. And one of the aspects of an unhealthy one is justification. This sense that I am still morally right, even while I am completely corrupt. And that might be, my corruption might come out in terms of indulgence or greed or any kind of bad behavior, but I can twist myself into mental pretzels that help me fit that into my rubric of why it is the right thing to do and why I am still a moral, correct person doing them. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, pure, pure transmitting one uh, for me. This, uh, this, so one of the things we see in ones under stress as they start to repress this need for joy and excitement and pleasure and happiness is that it goes underground, right? It gets repressed and it starts to leak out. Um, when uh, Maria Jose is not around, I like to use the example of the TV preacher who gets caught in a hotel room with a couple of hookers and an eight ball, right? And, uh, you know, there's just this, you know, secret dirty life happening underneath the moralism that um, that tends to take place uh, in, a, again, a very unhealthy, very repressed one who is not integrating some of their impulses here. So I saw that uh, over and over. And the, 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 the way he was quoting the Bible verses, it was almost as if they were referring to him and not God, right? Uh, you know, with John eight twelve, is I, he was basically saying, I'm the light. Right. And, you know, so there was this uh, there wasn't necessarily moral conflict in him because he was just unconflicted about what I think is right is right. And, uh, you know, there was this punitive uh, quality to him. I remember doing a training one time and the uh, CEO of the company was a transmitting one, what others would call the sexual one. And, and this guy was great. I, I mean, I'm still in touch with this guy. I love this guy. He's really, really a good guy. Um, but he falls victim to his issues sometimes. And he was talking about how I don't want people to just see that they made a mistake. I want to punish them for it. And I know this isn't a good thing, 
but I need them to feel some sort of hurt for having transgressed in some way, right? Uh, you know, this this was the warden for me, um, you know, so seemed very one-ish character to me, a very unhealthy one. My apologies to all my one friends out there, but I'm an eight and I get some pretty crappy, uh, you know, analogies. So, uh, you know, so uh, I'm not, so, so there you go. Okay. You know, somebody else's turn. How's that okay. feel? <laughs> okay. So let me, let me, th- I agree with all of that. And actually, let, and honestly, re- that, that let was, me retort, right? that was <laughs> more the way I was leaning. Uh-huh. Um, but I was conflicted because, and it's interesting. You said you saw him as a transmitting one. So talk me through because it feels like the transmitting one is more, they want to change the world. You know, you talk about how people uh, think that it's the navigating one who wants to do it, but it's actually the transmitting one. And it, it didn't. It, I didn't get anything from him where he's like trying to reform, trying to change the system. It seems like more his, his inside out program, the, you know, whatever he's doing with the inmates, it's really more about controlling his kingdom and, embellishing his own pockets it doesn't seem like he has any sense of of wanting true reformation even from an unhealthy perspective yeah so uh, what happens with the transmitting one is the healthier ones the more aspirational ones want to change the world the less healthy ones want to change you right so you i want to control you i want to change you i want to make sure that you are living the way i think you should Right. So it's the transmitting one that can be really, really tough on people who they don't see as following the rules and, you know, living the right way. So, um, you know, that's how I would. See yeah, it. that's interesting. I need to th- I need to think more about that. I guess I on paper, it's kind of like interesting how you said with red, like, you know, the difference between the words, you, the script that was written on paper and his affect. All those things I agree with, the um, put your faith in the Lord, your ass belongs to me, and the, the quilt thing, his judgment cometh and that right soon, this very judgmental thing. I guess I didn't, I just didn't buy it from him in terms of feeling like he really meant it. It almost felt like he was more using that as a cover to just have power over people. But that, could, just, that could speak to his unhealthier that's the way an unhealthy one, I guess, would use some of that is they don't really believe it for themselves. They just believe it for other people or something. Yeah, we have to be careful about attributing high morals to ones, right? Because for the one, it's not about morality. It's about feeling perfect in whatever that means for me and expecting others to feel perfect. So, I mean, there are ones who are, you know, bikers and serial killers and you know all these things i'm sure right uh so i you know so they're they're not all they're not all like you tj and well like you know. susan you know so uh <laughs> you know, so i just want to mention right. uh, there was a broadcast susan that you did from some prisoners in san quentin one of whom was a one who described his years as a crystal meth addict and how something he would do with some of the other prisoners was show him show them the right way to do crystal meth about how we may be meth addicts, but it doesn't mean we have to be tweakers. Like wanting to reform the way this hard drug is done so that it's done properly. No sense of like, you know, we, maybe we shouldn't be doing this because it's illegal and it's bad for your health. But it's like, no, no, this is who we are. Let's do it right. But even 
after being incarcerated, there are ones whom we've met on the inside who are in a lot of rationalization and denial and all kinds of defenses with not being able to rectify the fact that they're in there that doesn't actually compute because they're still in the delusion that that I am doing something for for the benefit or for some higher purpose. There's been so much justification to get myself in there. So the the coming to grips with the, the reality, right? I think that's what all the, the eight, nine, and one are doing is negotiating with reality, fighting against reality, making up my own reality. And then when some of the ones that have been really dear to me that I've worked with on the inside are still working to reform something, but often it's like writing up the correctional officers because they aren't doing something in due process with what they say they're supposed to be doing. And, um, and, and it's like the final turning in and recognizing, oh, it's actually me. I'm the one that's driving this is, is quite, I mean, I think for all of us egotistically, it's a hard one to swallow. Yeah, it's good. What you said there, um, Susan, made me think of Aaron Beck's book, uh, Prisoners of Hate, uh, which was out quite, probably in the 90s. Uh, Aaron Beck was the uh, founder of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And in this book, he's making the case that no one gets up in the morning thinking they're doing the wrong thing, right? We all do what we do because it seems to be the right thing to us, right? We just kind of have a screwed up narrative in our head or a, you know, a, a screwed up rationalization that allows us to justify some pretty awful behavior sometimes. And, uh, you know, in ones, because, you know, some ones who are very unhealthy, because they believe so hard that they're right, can really go a long way before stopping to question the uh, impact of their behavior. All right. So, um, again, uh, most of our one friends are, are far, far better people than this warden. Um, most, you know, most of them. Uh, most. most. Uh, what a know, big most. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> I know some pretty awful people. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. All right. Um, so let's see. Uh, the, the, the prison guard, um, uh, played by Clancy Brown. I forget what was the name. It was Captain uh, Hadley. Hadley. Thank you. Thoughts on Captain Hadley? Well, you keep asking us. Why don't you tell us what you think he is? I don't don't know if we even need to have this discussion, but you go first. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm hoping that everybody sees him as an eight. Uh, You know, know, again, uh, other than the the SpongeBob character, uh, you know, I don't know that Clancy Brown is capable of playing anything uh, but an eight, and he does it really, really well. Uh, This guy was all about, um, you know, power. Right. I'm going to control this place through through brutality, through fear, through control, uh, through dominance. Right. All these uh, unhealthy eight things that we say. So um, there's some really creative insults. (laughs) Give an example. Do do any come to mind? One that comes to mind is fuckstick. When Andy's friend approaches him on the roof, that's what he calls him. And that just comes off the top of his head. He's like, wow. He calls someone a pile of monkey spunk at one point. That was an interesting one. <laughs> yes, that, that's great. I'd, I'd forgotten about those. But uh, this is, and this is an eight-ish thing, too, if you haven't noticed this, this giving names to people, right? Um, usually via insult, but if I name you, I control you. I dominate you because I have set the terms for how you're going to be perceived. So uh, eights are really, really good at uh, at uh, mocking and controlling people through creative 
insulting terms that way. Or even showing affection that way, something Jack Nicholson is famous for. Angelica Houston said this in her autobiography when the part she talks about her relationship with him. He had nicknames for everyone in his circle. They were always affectionate, but he'd never call somebody just by their straight up name. It was always his version of their name, which I see as a way of him claiming you. You're one of mine. Don't you forget it. I never have put that together. I think that's so insightful. And I have a type eight and, um, and, and he has a nickname for me, which is not like any other nickname that somebody would come up with. It's Fred. And you would wonder how did he get that. <laughs> I almost can't even tell you how he got it. And what's funny is that Rick's, my husband's name is Frederick, but no one calls him Fred. And so often my kids refer to me as Fred. And it is really endearing. I'm going to go so far as to say, I, I really feel the love from this boy. And we all have nicknames for him. And he, his name is Quinn. We call him the Mighty Quinn. We call him Quansel and all kinds of things. And he loves to collect names from his friends. It makes him feel quite endeared. So I'm going to really, that's the takeaway for me. I love it. I think for, for me, the things, Captain Hadley, he embodies everything that I appreciate about type eight, even, even when he's beating the hell out of people. And, and the, the thing with the thing that I appreciate is I never have to wonder, almost never have to wonder where I stand with a type eight and whether, whether they're wanting me to die or whether they're wanting me to live. Like there is no confusion. So uh, it's always crystal clear. And I appreciate, uh, and obviously this is my type structure. I, I appreciate not having to burn any in, uh, energy on wondering, well, where do I stand with this jackass, you know? And also I think that they're fairly easy to win over which, which Andy kind of proves with, you know, just knowing a few things and now this guy's on your side. And, and then once he's on your side, life is just better and it's, sa- it's safer, even in a place like prison. And the way that, um, that he actually, ironically enough, controls Hadley and gets this other dude paralyzed, the, one, of the, one of the sisters paralyzed. Um, like that's, I appreciate that about type eight. I never have to go, gee, I wonder what they're thinking. I wonder how they feel about me. And I like it. And even even as abrasive as this character is, I just appreciate the hell out of it. And I love it, actually. You know, it's really interesting to me that you say that, Clay, because that's one of the things I always say that I like about fives is that they tell you what they're thinking. I mean, if you ask them, right? I mean, they might not volunteer a lot of information, but they they don't sugarcoat things. They don't beat around the bush. And we see this with Andy too, right? Andy's not one to, you know, hold back what he thinks. He's just very clinical in the comments that he makes about the world. And I find that with fives that, again, to very similar things. I I don't have to waste time figuring out what you mean by that, right? I don't need a decoder ring because you're making, you know, elliptical comments and, you know, that sort of thing. So so I do think that's an area where fives and eights tend to get along uh, very well. Yeah, and the the pre-show conversation that nobody will ever hear actually embodied that in about ten seconds. The first thing you did on was shit on my baseball team, and then the first and then the response to that was, "Well, unfortunately, you're from Philly." And then that was, we and go. we said that so even we in know humor where we stand. that has a place. Exactly, you know, we know where we stand. We, I, I, you know, for me, and again, I don't do this consciously, but when I think about it, is you know, I'm poking and prodding at this person to see who they are. Right, because how they respond tells me who they are, and I know how far I can go with them, and you know how I have to handle them if I have to handle them with kids' gloves, that sort of thing. So it's just this natural sort of poking uh, that helps to set the rules. Yeah. I dig it. I support it. <laughs> I would venture to say that's not just your eightness. I'd say that's also your navigating. That's a big part of it too. Yeah. 
All right, great. Okay, so um, did we miss anybody? Any other good enneagrammatic characters or conflicted characters? We did say that the Morgan Freeman character is a little bit conflicted. We didn't come to terms on him. But uh, any uh, any characters we missed here? I'd say Tommy Williams seems a pretty clear seven to me. He's the good time guy. He's entertaining. He's funny. Everybody loves him immediately. He tells stories about his own crimes and his own life like he's a stand-up comedian, and people just gravitate to him immediately. Clay, tell me about the grin on your face as uh, TJ was talking there. Uh, he's just so eager to tell you everything that you're not supposed to say in prison, like all the crimes that he committed, and he's bragging at a table of people who are just like, don't talk about this shit, man. Like, what the hell? Like everybody, you know, and and you know, it's it's and that's not literally true. Like sometimes we do talk crime in in prison. Um, it's you're just sitting around, you know, shooting shooting the breeze sometimes. So it's not that it never happens, but he's boasting about it, and it's comical to me because it's it's uh, it made me think of a specific per- specific person whose name I'm not going to say. That's where the grin came from to answer your question. It's and this person that I know who is a seven who who I did time with. He'd just so eagerly and just cheerfully tell you about, you know, I stole this TV and this guy told me to put the TV down. I said, well, if I drop it, you know, break the thing, you know, all this stuff. And it's just like, it's so hilarious to me that a pretty dark topic is being handled fairly lightly. And so, yeah, he struck me as, as not like what quote unquote, like a bad guy who's in prison. He's just, it's fun to steal TVs. It's fun to steal a car. So I'll do it. And now he's in prison for it. Also, really appreciated the process of him learning to read and getting his his as uh, diploma equivalency, whatever that whatever they called that in the movie, and and knowing that um, like he's very aware that he's uneducated, like he's not just blindly ignorant in life, like he's a he's smart enough to know that he's dumb, for lack of a better explanation. And I enjoyed watching the two of those, like I said earlier, go through the alphabet, the most fundamental of all. Reading is learning what the letters are and what sounds they make. And, and then even when he gets frustrated, the way that he says, you know, the cat and the tree and five times five is 25 and fuck this and all this stuff. I just, I, it's funny, but it's also very, um, endearing, I guess. I don't know. So I, 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 I've butted heads with that type a lot. And so the grin comes both from those memories as well as just nice fond memories of specific people. Clay, I'm curious to hear your response to this. Something I've heard Russ, who's a five, say about type five in relation to creativity is that one of the great gifts of type five is curiosity and that fives will respond positively to somebody of any type who displays curiosity. Fives will be disdainful of somebody who's talking bullshit, somebody who seems to know what they're talking about, but actually really doesn't, but is going on and on like they're an authority, like they're smart, and the five sees through them. That's when the five can come in and puncture them. Yeah, I get pretty hostile when people try to sell me on some bullshit because there's there's multiple things happening. First of all, you're attempting to create a, re- a reality that doesn't exist to anybody but you, and you're so you're trying to you're trying to form reality, which reality already exists. I don't need you to create it for me, and so there's that piece of it that annoys me, and there's also the piece where you're insulting the hell out of me, like uh, to to. An example that I used yesterday and I'm starting to use it more and more is the Santa Claus analogy as a kid. Like if you're telling me about Santa Claus and I'm not buying it, but you still, you still keep trying to sell it. Not only are you creating the myth of Santa Claus and this whole reality that doesn't exist, but you're also insulting me by thinking that I'm dumb enough to believe it. So that's what bullshit is. That's where you're trying to sell me on something that's not real. 
And so you're both trying to pull me out of reality while insulting me in the process. So it's, it's pretty, it's one of the worst things. It's, it's probably the quickest way I could, I could get to violence is, is, is through something like that. I'm more likely to accept a punch to the face than an insult to my brain. And then the counterpoint to that is somebody like Tommy who said, who admits, I don't know this thing, but I would like to. What, what a great starting point to teach someone is, is the first thing out of their mouth is I don't know. And they're just, and they're open about it. There's no shame to it. There's no pride to it either. There's just this, there's a starting point of, I don't know. And I, and that is, that is the, to me, it's just the best starting point to any process of transferring understanding from me to you. And whether that's chess, whether that's reading, whether that's how to shoot a basketball, whether it's anything, how to drive a car, you name it. If, if you come to the table with, yeah, I used to, I used to play, you know, professional basketball, you know, in Europe and I, but I forgot how to shoot a free throw. If you're coming to me with that and asking me how to shoot a basketball, I'm just as stupid. Like, why are you coming to me with this BS? But if you come to me with, I don't even know what a ball is. I don't know what shape the a basketball, what does that even mean a basketball? And that I would much rather start with that, which is again, why I just love go watch the scene with Andy standing in front of the chalkboard with the alphabet. And, and if you didn't know English and didn't know what those letters were, you wouldn't know that it's the alphabet or if it's some quadratic equation of, you know, showing to a room of professors. Like it's the joy is in transferring to a person who's willing to accept that they are at step one. And it's, it's beautiful. It's awesome. It's what life is about. One of the other uh, things about Tommy that stood out to me as a, a good depiction of a seven was his... Um, falling apart uh at the end of taking the test right he just uh and this is something that you see in sevens this anxiety this fear of failure that's usually rooted in a fear of disappointing other people right this insecurity one of the reasons that a lot of sevens don't finish things when they don't is because uh, they're afraid of disappointing the people around them and I think it was pretty clear that Tommy was, you know, uh, feeling some panic that he would disappoint Andy by not doing well, right? This person put all this uh, faith and confidence and effort into me, into me, and, um, you know, I, I let him down. So they usually, they can often react that way of, oh, this is all bullshit. I don't care about it and so forth. So I think that was a really good, accurate depiction there. Any other thoughts on Seven and or Tommy? I was kicking around three for a while when I was first considering that character. And I think three and seven can look a lot alike. I think anybody could be ashamed and embarrassed about not being able to read when they're an adult, especially in a place where it's prime pickings to be, to be made fun of, but he did have a lot of swagger and bravado and um, you know, all of that, a lot of pride in his accomplishment. And when he was, these are just other cases I was making in my head as I was trying to really decide. And when he, did go out and meet the warden right out in the dark in between outsides in the cells. And he was absolutely willing to, to say the, um, the honest thing, like the, the real veracity in him when he was, when he had an opportunity to really be that way, he, he had that at his core. So I don't know, there were some counter arguments I was, I was making in my head as I went, but all of this is also very compelling. And I do see a, a, a lot of threes in, and especially in prison, 
especially down the lower levels, when there's a lot of acting out, it's they look an awful lot alike. Yeah, and in particular, the transmitting seven, mm-hmm. um, which others would call the sexual subtype, um, can look very three-ish, right? So the, the sideburns that Tommy had, the Elvis look going on, right? And his his incessant talking, right, in, in the cafeteria. I mean, storytelling and talking and so forth. Uh, very characteristic of uh, transmitting sevens uh, as well. Just this need to entertain, to entertain myself by entertaining you. Right. It gives me something to do. It passes the time and so forth. It wasn't like he was trying to show off necessarily, you know, like oh, I'm this criminal mastermind sort of thing. It was just, uh, you know, you're laughing at these stories I'm telling, so I'm going to keep telling them. Right. And, uh, and another thing I've seen in sevens, quite frankly, and I, I live with three of them, um, they really, really want to please people. Right. They really, really want to make other people happy uh, deep down inside. And they really want to. You know, there's a lot of one going on in sevens and kind of a, but in a nice way. Um, <laughs> a little dig there, guys. Um, that they, uh, you know, they, they have this, you know, real need to do the right thing by people and please them that way. That ultimately cost him his life, too, because he was so yep. eager to do all that. Exactly. That he didn't even notice there was a human with a gun 10 feet above him, which is, I don't think, I don't know other types that would. Good luck doing that with a six, right? Why are you asking me this question? What you just asked me that you're asking me four different ways the same damn thing, right? And and, and why is that Tommy. big guy with there with the gun, right? Why are we in the courtyard? Good luck. Yeah, I'm walking outside the prison to talk with the guy who runs the prison. I don't think so. Dude has an office, and there's nobody around. Good luck with that. I'm, the first thing I do when I see a warden standing by himself is do a 360 and make sure there's no way that a warden is going to stand there, but you know, by themselves. So clearly, there's other people. You know hiding in the shadows but it's hard to see that sometimes when you just want to be that you know that eager to help or to connect or however you want to say that all right good so um we're we're, we're running out of time here uh so we're coming to the close final thoughts anything we have not captured uh, uh tj doll you always have something in reserve that you want to bring out so share your share your, your thoughts tj yeah my thoughts about this movie really changed about 10 years ago i wrote a blog post about it because I was considering the question of why is this movie so universally beloved when it wasn't a hit when it first came out. So it's not like it's a hit because there was a great marketing campaign that got everybody seeing it. It didn't win any awards. Very few of the people that love this movie have been to prison. So what's it a metaphor for? I work in the arts, and a big struggle for a lot of people in the arts is how do I make my living in the arts because most people are stuck in a day job. And that got me thinking this movie works as a metaphor for being in any life situation that you believe you're stuck in and there's a better life somewhere on the horizon, how do I get there? And one of the ways, certainly not the only way, but the Andy Dufresne way is a little bit at a time, playing the game as you need to and keeping a little bit aside just for yourself. And that can definitely apply to doing personal work using the Enneagram or any other modality. We are stuck in a prison in many ways, whether it's our job, our personality, any kind of way. And if we want to get out of it, It's going to take time. It takes Andy Dufresne 17 years to tunnel out of Shawshank. It takes persistence and patience and intelligence. It also takes alliances. He can't do it on his own. So that applies to personal work. That definitely applies to using the Enneagram to help you become a better version of yourself. Great. Susan, I'm curious about your thoughts on this movie as a metaphor related to the work that you do. Well, I really agree with, with that. And, and I know I'm not the first person to intimate that we're all in a prison of our own making. And I think I read that 
those words exactly from, or something close to it from Don Miso early, early on. But I find that to be so, so true. And that, that the reason that we say that all the time is because it works so much on the outside as well. And I think that the draw to the film, I think, is pointing us to the human condition. I know people, some of the reviews I, I read talked about it as being more of what um, TJ and Gracia was saying, like a relationship movie for guys. But here I am, just just one of the guys today, but very much, you know, uh, a woman and touched by it over and over again. I am a bit of a sucker for this topic. You know, the heart is 150 feet in the prisons. And, um, and the thing I like about it so much is the hope that there's there is something about the this the sense of redemption that really you know speaks to my type one sensibilities and i just love it continue to love it for that reason hope is a good thing maybe the best of things what he said what andy said (laughs) all right okay folks Uh, uh so susan clay Thank you so much for joining us. This has been uh, really, really fun, really, really interesting. Um, you guys really brought something to our podcast today in this discussion of this movie. So uh, I want to thank you both for joining us. Um, TJ and TJ, as always, uh, it's great to be here. TJ and Gracia, thank you for picking this movie. Um, uh, it's been a while since I watched it. Really, really enjoyed watching it again uh, in preparation for this. And TJ Daw. Thank you for uh, this brilliant idea of having Clay and Susan join us. So we'll see you next time on the Enneagram in a Movie. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media. 